welcome to New Books in History, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University. Usually I'm the host of the New Books and Genocide Studies channel. Today, however, I'm pinch hitting on New Books in History. As such, I'm... Welcome to New Books in History, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University. Usually I'm the host of the New Books and Genocide Studies channel. Today, however, I'm pinch hitting on New Books in History. As such, I'm particularly delighted to have the chance to interview Jeffrey Warrow, author of the wonderful new book, A Mad Catastrophe, The Outbreak of World War I and the Collapse of the Habsburg Empire, published by Basic Books. The book is a masterpiece of narrative military history. Besides his deep understanding of the period, Jeffrey is a wonderful writer, able to untangle complicated battlefield maneuvers and explain events in areas unfamiliar to most readers. In addition, he has an eye for pithy quotations and compelling anecdotes. The book, quite simply, reads like a novel, but one that helps explain one of the most important developments of the early 20th century. I'm thrilled to have a chance to talk with him about the book. So with that, Jeff, thanks for joining us on New Books in History and welcome to the show. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me. I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the book. Yeah, so let, let's start um, by asking... And, and, thank, you, and thank you for the glowing introduction, by the way. Oh, well, <laughs> it's well-deserved. So, so let me start by just asking you to say a little bit about how and why you became a military histor- historian and how you see yourself fitting into the spectrum of military history. Well, you know, I've, I've always, uh, since my childhood, I've been very interested in military history. And uh, recently, this, the... the the uh, secondary school I went to uh, asked me to write uh, something about my career, about how I became a historian. I said, well, quite frankly, uh, growing up in the 60s and 70s, all the media was about war. You know, all the shows that we watched, like Rap Patrol, Combat, 12 O'Clock High, Hogan's Heroes, they were, they were all about World War II. And we all used to play guns or army in the backyard, and uh, somebody would be the German, somebody would be the American. So at the same time, I was reading a lot. All the comic, there were... Two of my favorite comic books were Sergeant Rock and Sergeant Fury. So I think that generation was really saturated in military affairs. Uh, most most people's dads had been in the service and then told stories about World War II. So I think, uh, you know, that's sort of how I came into it. And then throughout college and then later graduate school, I was very obviously interested in history. I did my BA in history, my, my PhD in history. Uh, but I've been reading long before that. Just uh, and and generally, I was drawn to military history, not so much the, you know the sort of campaign history which I find rather dull, but more the you know what it what it reveals about leadership, what it reveals about decision making, crisis decision making, and and the social makeup of armies and how they perform under pressure. And uh, I was always very curious. I think when I was about 12 years old, I read uh, Barbara Tuckman's The Guns of August. Mm-hmm. And I remember at that time being very interested in, in what exactly an Austrian was. So I'd read her you know, sort of sketchy accounts of the fighting on the Eastern Front, just the Austrians rolling forward, then the Austrians rolling backward. And I, and I was uh, just old and smart enough to realize that this Austria was nothing like the Austria that I saw on maps of... of uh, Europe in my childhood, in the little Austrian Republic, and I, so I became very interested in the, in the uh, spread and then the contraction of the Austrian Empire, not least because my paternal grandparents were from Austrian Galicia, and uh, my grandfather on my father's side actually served in the Austro-Hungarian Army before he emigrated to the States in the early 1900s. 
unfortunately, before World War One. And I say in the acknowledgments of the book that had he stuck around, he would certainly be yeah. called back to the colors, and he uh, would not have made it if you read my book. <laughs> <Do I>? mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so you've kind of marched your way through the 19th century with with some of your earlier writings. Why this book now? Well, the uh, it was a it was a. The, it's a good question. My, my dissertation in my first book was called The Austro-Prussian War, and uh, mm-hmm. it was Austria's war with Prussia and Italy in 1866, published by Cambridge. And uh, right after I wrote that book, I was very curious, having ha- having put the Austrian army under a microscope in that campaign and found it uh, very wanting. And that was when times were pretty good in the Habsburg Empire. I was very curious to see how they performed in World War One. Not the, as I said, the sketchy accounts provided by Tuckman or by most historians in the First World mm-hmm. War writing about the Eastern Front. Even like one of my favorite books about the Eastern Front is uh, Norman Stone's yeah. book, written in the 1970s. But even when it comes to the battles, he's operating very much on a uh, higher operational plane and uh, focuses most of his analysis on the Russians and the Russian state. And there's very little treatment of the armies in the field and how they behaved and how they marched and how they fought. And that's what really interests me. You know, when the, when the rubber hits the road, how does the army do? And so I was, you know, when I wrote the Austro-Prussian War book for my next project, I was very interested in, in following the thread through to 1914. And, uh, but then I was, in the, as is the case with a lot of academics, I was derailed by offers to write books for other, other <laughs> publishers on other topics like the Franco-Prussian War book and the Middle East book. And, um, but I, I, I had begun research for this, and then in 2012, I went back to Vienna, and I spent uh, three months in the archives uh, tying up loose ends and, and getting the stuff that I hadn't got earlier. And I also was trying to time it for the centennial of the outbreak of the war, because I thought that would be, there'd be a lot of interest, there'd be a lot of people uh, interested in reading about it, and it would kind of cluster nicely with other offerings on the subject. So, as, as I said, one of one of the great things about this book is is your ability to write these kind of succinct but thoughtful characterizations. So, so I'd like to start by asking you to describe a, a, a few of the important characters, and, and why don't we start with Franz Josef? You know, Franz Josef. I, I you know, I was a Fulbright scholar in in uh, Vienna from 1989 to 91, so I spent two mm-hmm. you know, complete years there. That I've been back for other research trips, uh, and then I was back in 2012 for three months, and I'm always amazed at, at how old Franz Josef just gets a complete pass on everything that happened in the Habsburg <laughs> monarchy. I mean, he he's uh, he's beloved to the Austrians today as being sort of a George Washington figure, probably in reverse. But uh, you know, here's somebody that they just you know, he's a symbol of the Austrian tourist industry. And uh, he gets, you know, glowing coverage and even serious history books, you know, by, by, by serious Austrian academics. Uh, and, you know, that's just has never really, um, that has never really seemed accurate to me. When you look at a guy who was emperor of Austria from uh, 1848 until 1916, here's a guy that really shepherded the uh, empire into the modern age and had the longevity to really manage its development and maybe avert its breakup by timely, intelligent changes. And he never did. And so in this book, I kind of peered into his daily routine and said, what is this guy doing, actually? <laughs> and, you know, he's just, uh, 
he's a he's he's really a, a man of the Victorian age, and he 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 believes in you know the divine right of monarchy, and he really just really wasn't interested in making timely concessions because any concessions, as far as he was concerned, would would lead to the dissolution of the empire, which I think is false. You know, if the empire had been intelligently reformed over time. It could have gone on and on if there'd been a ministry of nationalities, if they'd given language rights to the various nationalities and not made them speak German in the West and Hungarian in the East, uh, things like that. You know, if, they, if they'd really taken their parliament, if they had a parliament uh, in in Vienna, the Reichsrat, and they had another parliament over in Budapest, um, and both of these parliaments were gerrymandered so that the so-called master nationalities could have majorities and could run the government and even so, these uh, govern these gov- in the western side. It wasn't really a, truly a responsible government. Uh, the emperor didn't like something; he just overruled the Reichsrat. So, and in, in Budapest, it was uh, you had seven percent of the population occupying a hundred percent of the seats in parliament, and ninety-three percent were disfranchised. Basically, hmm. if you weren't an educated, wealthy Hungarian, you couldn't uh, you couldn't even vote, let alone go into parliament. So. Uh, that was a, that that situation was even worse than uh, in the western half of the empire. So, uh, Franz Joseph created all this. You know, he was somebody that uh, was young enough to get things done by the by, by the end. You know, by by his by the end, nineteen sixteen, when he died. You know, he's he's old and he's just not ready. But he went through the eighteen sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, and fine fellow and could have made changes. So. Yeah, I I I, uh, I look at him very critically, uh, but not in a polemical sense. I give him a fair hearing, and I just find him wanting, unlike uh, most historians. And when you talk about you know what he actually did, you know, I mean, he'd go hunting, he'd uh, hang out in the summer palace, he'd have little audiences with people. But you know, this was the classic guy fiddling while Rome burns. Mm-hmm. I take students to uh, Europe every other year. And I actually did a Fulbright year in Vienna as well. And so I take them to Schönbrunn. And that's certainly the picture you get of him from Schönbrunn is somebody who's working really, really hard and not actually doing anything. Well, yeah, they, they, have actually... to sort of, they have to anchor their you know, tourist industry on something. And so when they have all mm-hmm. these palaces, and he's a natural person to sort of hang, hang his picture on the wall and make him a sign of the good old days. But uh, in fact... He really was a horrible strategist, and then, you know, militarily, he was a butcher. So, and I think all this needs to be made clear if we're going to have a, a really accurate, round understanding of Austria-Hungary. Mm-hmm. So, so his designated, perhaps designated to our word, his successor uh, until, of course, he's killed, Franz Ferdinand. If you could say anything about him, he was going to make changes, right? How, how, how do yeah, you no, I mean, uh, Franz Ferdinand, everything I just said about Franz Joseph was deeply felt by Franz Ferdinand. Uh-huh. The two men were not close. Uh, you know, Franz Joseph had a son named Rudolf who uh, killed himself in the uh, 1889 and uh, leaving Franz Joseph without an heir. So it became it became his nephew, Franz Ferdinand, and Franz he he never liked Franz Ferdinand, and Franz Ferdinand never never liked him, and uh, Franz Ferdinand didn't like Franz Joseph because he was so slack and he was so he had no initiative and he wasn't uh, tackling any of these problems. In fact, he was making them worse. So, you know, for example, the, I talk a lot in the book about the Ausgleich, the comp- Great Compromise of 1867. When uh, Franz Joseph basically split the empire into two, gave the Hungarians their own parliament, and let them rule over the eastern half of the empire, which they took to mean uh, the freedom to oppress 
the nationalities of the East, like the Ukrainians, the Slovaks, and the Romanians. So uh, Franz Ferdinand looked at this as being an absolutely uh, fateful decision. You know, he said the only the only chance this empire has of succeeding is if the dynasty is perceived as truly as an honest broker between the dozen nations. Remember, the empire is made up of a dozen nationalities, you know, Czechs, Poles, Ukrainians, Romanians, Slovaks, Slovenes, Croats, etc., Germans, Hungarians. And, uh, you know, Franz Ferdinand felt very strongly that the dynasty had to, you know, be a mediator between the nations and make sure that uh, that no single nation like the Hungarians dominated the others. Now, that said, he's somebody who thought, look, this will never work if we don't have some, you know, hardcore that is common to everybody. So he saw German culture and the German language uh, as being the hardcore that would hold everything together. But on the margins, he was willing to concede, uh, you know, pretty wide liberties to the peoples in order to keep them loyal to the dynasty. And he saw Franz Josef's decision to split the empire into a German and Polish ruled western half and a Hungarian ruled eastern half. He saw this as being absolutely insane because it would militate against the whole historical mission of the dynasty, which was to join these various nationalities in, in what one Austrian general calls a saucepan of the nations. When I say in the book that the problem is that they dumped too much paprika in the saucepan <laughs> by giving this outside influence to the Hungarians. And the Hungarians were this, you know, they were, you know, 18 to 20 percent of the Austro-Hungarian population. But they, they, and they feel very vulnerable ethnically because they're surrounded by a, uh, a larger number of Romanians and, and, and Slavs. And so they uh, they majorize all the people on their half of the empire, make them speak Hungarian, make them go to Hungarian schools, make them go to Hungarian church, and you know this is uh, this, this is absolutely disastrous. So this is the sort of thing that Franz Ferdinand wanted to correct. And so he actually said, so he's a very interesting figure, and he there's a lot about him in the book that I think most people don't know. They just know him about the guy who got shot in Sarajevo. They don't realize mm-hmm. that really. In 1914, 19, well, you know, in 1912, 13, 14, the years you know, leading up to the war, uh, he is really poised to take over the empire. There's talk of the emperor abdicating because now he's in his 80s and he's just, you know, slowing down. He's not going to imperial maneuvers anymore. He's not going to open the Reichstag anymore. Uh, he's, uh, you know, he's constantly ill. And, uh, you know, there's talk that he's either going to die or hand over the throne to Franz Ferdinand. And Franz Ferdinand sets up a shadow government. If you go to Vienna, you remember the Belvedere Palace, where the you know, beautiful uh, modern art exhibits are, the Kokoschkas, the Klimts. Well, the Belvedere Palace was his residence and his chancery. The lower Belvedere Palace, he set up a shadow government there on the Rennweg, and he had you know sort of shadowed um, you know ministries of war, ministries of foreign affairs, uh, ministries of the interior, where he had people, he had secretaries that were working all the big issues of the monarchy, preparing. For what was they called the tone vexel, the, the change of throne, the change of the change of, uh, of leader, when the old emperor rather die or, or abdicate, and uh, and so he was ready to step up. And so one of the r- real impacts of the Sarajevo assassination was that it removed the guy who was going to be the steadiest, surest hand, and then really the most sensible guy. He was somebody that didn't 
ever mind speaking truth to power, so he would call the emperor out on everything. This is another reason why they had terrible relations, is because the emperor felt that the archduke was encroaching more and more and more on his prerogatives, which, of course, he was, because the archduke had no respect for the emperor. He really thought he was asleep at the switch. So uh, by killing Franz Ferdinand, um, the, Bos- you know, the Bosnian Serb assassins, they not only uh, you know, spark World War I, but they removed the most responsible decision-maker in Vienna at the outbreak of the war. And so the command, you know, uh, Franz Ferdinand was going to command the army with Conrad as his general staff chief. And so a new archduke has to be found to command the army in his place, who's not nearly as competent, if only because he, he's very diffident. His name's Archduke Friedrich, and he's uh, he's he lacks confidence, and so he basically lets Conrad run the whole war. And Conrad makes some absolutely, you know, abysmal decisions, decisions that I... You know, you know, saying the book would have been, would in all likelihood have been overruled by Franz Ferdinand, but not by Friedrich. So the third characterization, I guess, is not of a person, but maybe a corporate person. So, so talk about the Habsburg army at the turn of the century. Well, the Habsburg army is in, you know, a very interesting uh, creation because you know, it served with distinction through the wars of the 18th century and then the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. It was the anvil on which British sea power and subsidies hammered Napoleon into the dust. And uh, they provided more bodies, and uh, they fought competently, not as brilliantly as the French, but competently enough. And they certainly learned the lessons of the wars, and by 1813, 14, 15, they're certainly fighting as competently as the French. And then they, uh, they, they fight well in uh, 1848 against the Piedmontese. Uh, they fight badly in 59, that fight badly in 1866, and yet they're still highly regarded. This, these are just seen as leadership problems that the army can be, can be fine if it's, if, uh, if they make a more professional general staff and they vet their generals more carefully and choose the right people. Um, and so there's a sense going, you know, into the late 19th century that, you know, this, this army is still a real great power army. And so what my book, Imagatastrophe, does is it, uh, well, it breaks the army down. It shows not only that it declined in those in the in the last half of the 19th century, early 1900s. Not only did it declined, but it declined, you know, precipitately. And uh, it was just this. It was just this falling off of a cliff financially, in terms of procurement, in terms of troop numbers, and uh, and so by 1914, this is not even a great power army. This is a laughable army with a peacetime strength that's. Uh, that's less than the fully mobilized Serbian army and a wartime strength that's many times less than the Russian army. And so it can't be relied upon to win any campaign. It, has a, it, it might be able to win a war in the, in the Balkans, might, but uh, it certainly is not going to be able to measure itself against the Russian Empire. And so when you go into World War I, all these decision makers are still assuming that Austria will be able to hold defensively on the Eastern Front while the Germans win in the West, beating the British and the French, and then bringing their army out to the East to weigh in with the Austrians against the Serbs. But Amakis Hashbury really talks about how this was uh, an absolutely um, irresponsible assumption on the part of the Germans and the Austrians that their army was in any shape to fight a great war. Because 
you know, I really chart the decline in the, in the, in the, in the end of the 19th century and the first decade of the 20th century as they basically keep cutting budgets. The Hungarian half of the empire, there's the, the Austria-Hungary is officially joined by delegations, a Hungarian delegation drawn from its parliament, an Austrian delegation drawn from their parliament, and they have to come up with a, a joint budget for the military, for foreign affairs, uh, for things like railways. And they meet in these delegation meetings and they discuss the budgets. Well, in all in these annual meetings, the Hungarians are always cutting the military budget. And uh, the, the book shows why. And, and the reason is, is that the uh, Hungarians view the joint army, the Austro-Hungarian army, as being an instrument of oppression, that they will never be able to cede, secede. They will never be able to form an independent Hungarian kingdom as long as there's a big Austro-Hungarian army. So... Their preference is to, uh, is to cut the budget for the imperial army, and and to the extent that they fund military expansion, they fund the Hungarian National Guard, which they assume will be a national army of a eventually independent Hungary. And so what happens is, uh, but but the emperor isn't willing to arm the Hungarian National Guard with the most modern weapons and, and even artillery until the very late 19th century. And so this Hungarian Honvedder National Guard is actually you know, quite weak. And uh, the Imperial Army, which they're cutting funding out of, is getting weaker and weaker and weaker. So it makes it uh, very difficult for the Austro-Hungarian Army to play a real great power role in the war. Their artillery is totally deficient. Their rifles are deficient. Their transport's deficient. And they, and they have you know far fewer machine guns than uh, than even the Russians, so the uh, who are also very backward. And so they, uh, you know, I, I talk about in the origin section of the book about how paradoxically the Germans hasten the outbreak of war in 1914 because they say this might be the last chance to use this you know this withering Austro-Hungarian army in a war before the empire goes under or the army becomes so laughably small that it's militarily useless. So uh, so given given the weaknesses and 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 given this this fear of the future um why is what happened to bring many or perhaps most of the Habsburg leaders to to perceive that war is the only real option left to them in 1914. Yeah, well, the first third of the book, uh, you know, really gets into this uh, mm -hmm. the prehistory of the war, and um, you know, it's we, we know basically what happened Europe wide. We have a very good sense of uh, you know the, the crises that led up to the July crisis of 1914, and we know a lot about great power decision making in this crisis. But we know less about the Austrian part of it. And, you know, one of the arguments the book makes is that the Austrians, you know, really generally get a pass in this war. The Germans are seen as the principal villain. Uh, and um, the Austrians are sort of seen as this, you know, hapless, shambolic state that kind of blunders into war and then goes down gloriously. But I, I, I talk about how they're very much uh, in charge of events in 1914 because... Basically, the emperor and the archduke and the foreign minister, Leopold Berthold, um, the general staff chief, Conrad von Hetzendorf, they, they are all in agreement by 1914. You know, in 1912, 13, the first two Balkan Wars, the archduke, Con, you know, the, the, the archduke and Berthold, the foreign minister, 
um, you know, they, they don't want to. They don't want a war. They want to avoid a war at all costs because they realize that Austria-Hungary will be beaten. But by 1914, everybody's basically to the point where they realize they have to go to war. And the reason being that they do trial mobilizations against the Serbs and the Russians in 1912-1913 because of the Balkan Wars. And the cost of these uh, trial mobilizations is immense, and it you know nearly bankrupts the Austrian state. And then at the end of these of these uh, you know trial mobilizations, which are meant to intimidate the Serbs and the Russians, uh, you know war does not break out, not because of the Austrian mobilizations, but because of you know great power uh, politicking. And uh, if they look at the you know financial mess created by these trial mobilizations, they say, well, we we spent all this money for nothing. The next time we do this, we have to go to war and win, or else uh, we're, we're going to go under anyway. So there's a sense. And then, you know, the book also talks about these very high-profile scandals, all of which get into the Austrian and world press uh, that, are, that are coincident with these developments, like the Aufenberg affair, where the war minister, General Moritz von Aufenberg, is, uh, is, is, ca- is basically caught um, in insider trading on the shares of Skoda, the big uh, artillery manufacturer in Austria, just before he announces a big buy of Skoda artillery. And so he's forced, you know, into the political wilderness. He'll reemerge in the book as a principal character because he gets one of the armies on, on, the, on the Russian front, mm-hmm. the, the Austro-Hungarian Fourth Army. But then there's the Jandrich affair. Jandrich is a... Uh, Jandrich is a uh, is a Bosnian Serb officer in the Austro-Hungarian army, and uh, it turns out, and his best buddies, his running around buddies of Conrad von Hutzendorf's son, Kurt, and um, so it turns out that Yandrich has been using his access to Conrad's son to run this espionage ring, which is selling military secrets to the uh, Russians and Serbs, and it turns out that. Conrad's son is, in all likelihood, part of this ring. Uh, certainly his girlfriend, he has an Italian girlfriend, mm. and she's part of the Yandrich ring. And there's uh, pretty good proof that Court Conrad was going into his father's study, stealing classified documents, giving them to uh, Yandrich so he could sell them, they could all, like, you know, get a bitch off this scheme. And then there's, the, the, of course, the most notorious of all is the uh, Radel affair. Where this uh, the, the head of counterintelligence and the Austro-Hungarian War Minister, uh, one of the fastest rising, most prominent, most celebrated Austro-Hungarian staff officers, Colonel Alfred Radel, turns out to be a Russian spy, and he's been a Russian spy for about a decade, and he's been selling war plans, he's been selling fortress plans, he's been selling mobilization plans, um, specifications on Austro-Hungarian equipment to the Russians for a decade. And uh, it's all the more, uh, you know, it's all the more um, juicy for the Austro-Hungarian and international press because there's a whole sexual angle. It turns out that Radel's gay and the Russians are providing with lovers who go and, uh, and, uh, and uh, ply him with sex and then he gives stuff and then he has a boyfriend in Vienna and it was a lieutenant, a cavalry lieutenant, and this comes out and it's a huge scandal all over the paper. Hmm. And, and the army, which has already been uh, kind of withering because of budget cuts, now takes a huge hit in the, in the public relations sphere because uh, 
and people see the army as being a nest of immoral activity and that sort of thing. So all this is happening in 1912-1913. And this also leads to the decision for war on the Austrian side in 1914, because they say that the, the regime is covered in scandal. The regime is going bankrupt. The regime can no longer reconcile the divisions between the Austrian and Hungarian halves of the monarchy. The regime can no longer manage the nationalist demands of the dozen nationalities of the monarchy. So a war... A war in which the dynasty wins a big victory will win the, the, the empire breathing room to reform itself in some way and move into the, the 20th century solidly. And there's a real feeling, uh, you know, in the people around Franz Ferdinand before his death that if there's a war and Austria can win, it will then have the legitimacy to shut down the Hungarian parliament, bring the Hungarian half of the empire back under the Habsburg flag, and move forward in a more, as as Franz Ferdinand thought, a more rational way. So at the outbreak of the war in July, who's who's making military strategy for the monarchy, and, and what did they intend to do? Well, the uh, the book talks a lot about this, uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's an amazing thing that, uh, you know, Franz Ferdinand is, shot on and his, and his wife Sophie are shot mm-hmm. on June 28th and the Austrians know right away that this is the pretext they need to launch a war against the Serbs remember the Serbs are are viewed by 1914 as Austria's you know greatest rival really uh they they have no illusions they can ever fight the Russians on equal terms they'll always need uh German help to beat the Russians but they think they can defeat the Serbs, and the Serbs think they can defeat the Austrians, because the Serbs are very plugged into the decline of the Austro-Hungarian army. So uh, they've all been kicking around a war with the Serbs for years. Uh, they've, got, they've got mobilization plans, war plans, they've got a flexible war plan where they can route part of the army to the Russian front, part of it to the Serbian front with a floating reserve in between that can commit to either one. They've got plans to send everything to the Balkans or everything to Galicia, to the Eastern Front. So they've they've been thinking about this and like yearning for this war for two or three years when the assassination happened. So, you know, the book talks about this and says, okay, you know, you'd expect that, you know, Conrad hears about the assassination when he's changing trains in Zagreb. He'd been at maneuvers with the Archduke and he skipped the event in uh, Sarajevo and went back because he and the Archduke were not friendly at all. And, um, he hears about it on the, as he's changing trains in Zagreb. So you'd think that this guy would then be like, okay, all hands on deck. Let's tee up the war against Serbia. Let's move fast. This is an outrage. Even the Russians will find it hard to support a regicide regime. You know, that if, you know, we can, if we can prove that, the, that this plot had at least some Serbian military or government backing, then, you know, the Russians are not going to be able to intervene because the whole world will be united in horror at the deep. So you would have thought that, you know, when Conrad got on his train from Zagreb up to Vienna, he'd be thinking about all this and he'd be, you know, um, you know making notes to himself and then getting off the train and getting on the tel- telegraph right away and uh, getting things organized. But in fact, he goes on vacation. He goes on vacation for the entire month of July. So does everybody in the Railway Planning Bureau of the general staff. So does the war minister. So does the emperor. So does the foreign minister. The Germans, military attaché at the German embassy in Vienna, goes by the general staff building 
And he says, I'd like to, you know, meet with Conrad to talk about what's going on. Oh, he's on vacation. So they come for like the whole, and he says, well, can I talk to his deputy? He's on vacation too. Can I talk to the war minister? He's on vacation. Uh, you know, remember the Kaiser goes on vacation too. He goes on his North Sea cruise. And this is one of the curiosities of the July crisis that most of the big decision makers are all on vacation. And why? Because they assume that this is just another little blow up in the Balkans. And that Austria, who has been grievously wronged in this matter, you know, Winston Churchill in his history of the Eastern Front says that the, the, the Serbian or the Bosnian Serb assassination of the Austro-Hungarian Archduke would be equivalent to the Prince of Wales on a visit to Dublin being assassinated by Irish Republican terrorists with weapons from the Dublin arsenal. And so, you know, he says, and I think that's a very good way of thinking of it. This was an outrage by anybody's, uh, you know, uh, considerations. And so all these guys are on vacation. And they don't, and the Germans are like, wait, if you're going to do this, you need to do this now before everybody sort of gets comfortable with this and starts thinking, hey, what are the Austrians beating up on the little Serbs for? And before the, the, uh, the, the Russians lose their horror at this, at, at this, uh, at this assassination. And they start thinking, well, we'll have to mobilize to defend the Serbs. So he doesn't come. He comes back for one ministerial council meeting, and then he goes back on vacation. He's back for like two days in mid-June, and then he goes back out to the South Tyrol for more vacation. So when they all come back at the end of July, when they declare a war and mobilize, everybody's been gone for a month. So the the mobilization of the Austrian guard in, in 1914 is notoriously chaotic. I mean, the good soldier Schweik, for goodness sake, writes about it in his Adventures of the Great War. And uh, so people know that they had this really slipshod mobilization. But most people didn't know until this book that all these guys were just absent and not planning anything. And the interesting thing about I don't want to you know, pick on poor old Conrad, but he was having an affair with a married woman. And when he went on vacation for a month in South Tyrol, he was with this married woman. And he was, you know, I write about this a lot in the book because, you know, when he when the war starts and he's in his eastern headquarters leading the war on the eastern front, he's like spending half his time writing letters to his mistress. And he's talking to his military and political advisors about his mistress, about how he misses her, about how... He has to win some battles because to look good in her eyes and that she'll never divorce her husband and marry him unless he <laughs> proves a great hero. I mean, it is, I mean, you mentioned in the beginning that it's almost like a novel. It, reads almost, I mean, it is almost like a novel. Yeah. You couldn't make this stuff up. It's so good. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was just really interested that, you know, none of this fine-grained but vital detail found its way into accounts of the first world, even up to this day even. I mean, I just hadn't seen anything like it that really mm -hmm. got into just how utterly, utterly irresponsible and dysfunctional the Austro-Hungarian, uh, it was called Armee Oberkommando, the AOK. It was the, uh, it was the Supreme Command, which was supposed to deploy on the Serbian front, but then when Russia intervenes, they have to move everything out to the Eastern Front. And that will be Conrad's home until uh, 1916. And uh, it's just incredible how poorly he and his, you know, minder, Archduke Friedrich, performed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember reading those letters that you talk about and just kind of sitting at the table in the archives and uh, 
I don't know about your experience in the archives. Mine was a very quiet, professional, kind of serious atmosphere where you felt distinctly uncomfortable laughing at all of the kind of highly amusing things you were reading in those letters. But so um, we don't have the time. And, and frankly, a pod, an audio podcast is probably not the right medium to go blow by blow through the first six months of the war, which you do wonderfully in the book. But, but can you just give us a broad sketch of how the campaigns go from August to February? Yeah, well, the, the campaigns were fatally um, undercut by the lost month of July. The fact that everybody went on vacation and didn't begin organizing the mobilization instantly and begin planning to swing the, the minimal Balkan group and the echelon B to swing, you know, 20 divisions down to fight the Serbs in a, in a rapid war, knock them out with a kind of blitzkrieg uh, to the extent that the Austrians were capable of that, and then route everything to the east to hold off the Russians who were you know, believed to be even more inefficient than the Austro-Hungarians, but I show in the book that they proved to be far more efficient than the Austro-Hungarians. Mm -hmm. um, and so everything was fatally undercut by the bad decision-making. Conrad knows full well that the Russians are going to get involved uh, after wasting a month, because by then, tempers have cooled, and you know foreign ministers are talking again, coming back from holidays, saying, this thing needs to be negotiated. We can't have Austria invading Serbia and partitioning the country. Uh, Serbia is a key Russian ally. Um, so they know that, that, that this is no longer going to be a one-front war. This will be a two-front war. And then the second front will be against the Russian colossus. So by late July, there's just no way that they can any longer even consider turning uh, the bulk of the army against the Serbs and just having a little picket line in the east to, to sort of watch the frontier with the Russians as they slowly mobilize. They know this is no longer an option. Everything has to be hurried out to the eastern front to uh, to try not to defeat the Russians, because they, they nobody believes they're going to be able to defeat the Russians. But they assume that the Austro-Hungarians will mobilize with Germanic efficiency and be the, you know, the firstest with the mostest, and be able to launch a spoiling offensive into Russia that will beat, you know, what forces the Russians get to the frontier earlier and then thrust as far as they can go and try to interrupt and slow down the Russian mobilization and deployment. So that's what has to be happening. But instead, Conrad comes back from holiday and roots the bulk of the army down to fight the Serbs. And then immediately upon sending this, this floating Reserve, which was supposed to go out to the Eastern Front, immediately on sending down to the Balkan Front, he repents of that decision because everybody says, are you nuts? And the Kaiser's calling the Emperor and saying, what the hell's going on? Why are you guys sending all these troops to Serbia? You know, you need to go to the Russian Front. And the Russians are in the war. And, he, you know, so he, he repents because he's getting all this pressure. And, and uh, so he then, after sending this floating reserve down to the Balkans, he then immediately orders it to go out east, which throws the whole mobilization 
into chaos because now you've got overlapping, intersecting trains. You've got, you've got, you know, orders that have been telegraphed ahead and the orders that, that are changing those orders don't catch up in time. It's, you know, complete chaos. And so what, you know, so what happens is they, the army that they send down to reinforce the smaller army fighting the Serbs doesn't stay there long enough to affect the war against Serbia. And then, but then arrives on the Eastern Front too late to weigh in in the fighting against Russia. Now, the book is very detailed about the fighting. There's these sort of alternating chapters. You know, they, they start the war in Serbia. So there's a chapter about this invasion in August. And then the next chapter is about the first moves on the, on the Russian front in Galicia. And then you go back to the chapter about their second invasion of Serbia uh, in September. And then you go back to the Eastern Front about the fighting, you know, in Galicia and Poland in September, and, that, and so it alternates back and forth. And and because the campaigns were definitely interrelated, and so uh, the armies that go to Serbia and then go out to the Eastern Front arrive too late, and it allows the Russian Eighth Army under Brusilov to outflank the entire Austro-Hungarian position on the Eastern Front. It comes in along the Dniester, just below Lemberg or Lviv, and it, and, it, and it rolls up the right flank of the Austro-Hungarian army, a flank that was supposed to be held by the Austro-Hungarian second army, which is the army that he sends down to reinforce the two armies he has on the Serbian frontier, which was supposed to be out in Galicia. Now, personally, I don't think it would have made much of a difference. So the Russians just had a critical advantage in troop numbers, but also heavy artillery. I mean, they had much better artillery than the Austrians, and they were just destroying the Austrian artillery, which was, you know, sort of you know, uh, old, obsolete bronze cannon uh, that, you know, fired a flat trajectory, no indirect fire, pretty short range compared to the Russian guns. And so I think they would have been beaten anyway, but they make it a, a certainty that they'll be beaten and beaten really badly. And I think this is important, and the book goes into this a great deal. We really follow this Austro-Hungarian army around as it first advances into uh, toward the Russian border and then flees back and ends up retreating behind the San River in Poland after this crushing Russia, Russian counteroffensive in September and October. But you see the effect of these mobilization errors and then these operational errors once they start the fighting in Serbia and uh, Galicia. You see the effect on the Austrian troop morale. You know, already by September, you know, a month into the war, the Austro-Hungarian troops, I proved in this book by just reading the reports of Austro-Hungarian units, mm-hmm. Uh, that they've completely lost heart. They've, they're completely demoralized. An army that was reluctant to serve going into this war has been totally undone by the war. And that's why, you know, there's a concluding chapter that covers the rest of the war down to the collapse in 1918. But, uh, you know, I argue that the die is cast. By March 1915, where this book really leaves off, after this, you know, just absolutely, absolutely foolhardy Carpathian offensive, which is covered in the book, where the Austrians attack into the high Carpathians in the winter, and they lose 800,000 troops, most of them to frostbite and illness. Um, they have lost so many men. They've lost virtually all of their trained officers and all of their trained infantry and cavalry and artillery troops in these first months of the war, that they're really fighting with a militia army for the rest, utterly untrained, utterly incompetent, and 
really rotted by national divisions because the longer-serving regulars who are wiped out in the first months of the war, they had internalized a lot of the you know, Habsburg propaganda and everything. And that was a function of the army. The army was supposed to take these rustic peasant types and forge them into Austrians. And, uh, and that worked for the people that were, you know, serving with the colors for several years. But you take in all these cannon fodder that they, that they pull up as, you know, they lose a couple of million guys in the first months of the war. They need all this cannon fodder. And they bring in people that had no military instruction, that have, uh, had no exposure to the German language of command and that sort of thing. And these guys are, you know, perplexed, but also a little bit pissed off because they realize that uh, this is not going to be a good war for them. Traditional military history has has a reputation, I think, for Monday morning quarterbacking. So with that, I, I wonder what you think, what options are available to the monarchy in 1914 that that perhaps would have turned out better. And, and then what does that say to us about the state of the monarchy at that time? Well, uh, the, the, the best option for the monarchy in 1914 was since they had been looking for a pretext to crush Serbia, that they would have recognized that this is a never-to-be-repeated opportunity where they can mm-hmm. attack the Serbs, they can invade the Serbs, they can aggress against the Serbs without international condemnation because the Serbs are linked in some way to this assassination plot. And even if they aren't, by the time people figure that out, the job will already have been done anyway. And so this was what they needed to do, But they and their failure to do it shows just how complacent, corrupt, and enervated they had become as a dynasty, as a government, as a great power. Uh, the fact that they're all off on vacation, that they, that they, that they you know, waltz so frivolously into this war in such a sort of half-assed, unprepared <laughs> way. When this was a war, they've been, preparing war, they've been preparing for this war since at least 1908, the Bosnian annexation crisis. And so this was their opportunity that they'd been waiting for, and they do nothing with it. In fact, they then embarked on the war under the worst possible terms from the PR perspective, but also, you know, in terms of military organization. Um, you know, I, I talk in the book about Alfenberg, that guy who had been dismissed as war minister, mm-hmm. um, you know, and he gets an army on the Eastern Front. And so in early, early August, I think like August 5th, Conrad calls a meeting in the, in the, in the war ministry building where the general staff is when he has all his Eastern Front Army commanders come and sit with him, and he hands out folders, and uh, Offenberg opens it and uh, expects to see the war plan and, and you know, Russian strength, and will there be any German strength on the Eastern Front, and what will be the total Austrian strength, and how many troops are going to be in Serbia, and are there uh, contingency plans to bring troops out of Syria to join the fighting on the Eastern Front? He expects that this will all be in his binder. And uh, he opens it up, and it, all it says is, Fourth Army will be based in this village. It will get its water from this reservoir. Uh, it will use this railway and these roads. Hmm. And that's it. And he's staring in this place. August 5th. The war is basically breaking out all around them. And all he's seeing is a list of campsites and water supplies. <laughs> and, the, and, and then he... 
waits for Conrad to say, okay, and as for operations, here's what we're planning. Nothing. Conrad says, okay, we're done. And nobody from the Serbian front is brought in. Potjoric, who's going to be commanding the fighting in the Balkans, or either of his army commanders. He's got two armies, the 5th and the 6th Army. None of those guys is present. So there's no sense that these fronts are going to be coordinated and managed as a totality. And um, so, obviously, if they were, are going to have any hope of victory, they need to be well-organized. They need to be professional. They need to take this seriously. And uh, to the extent there's a, a note of a little bit of indignation in the book, it's, the, it's just that I, I, as I read this stuff, I couldn't believe that people were embarking so lightheartedly on a war that will end in the death and maiming of millions and I say in the epilogue, you know, that, you know, the, the First World War has a bad name, uh, rightly so. But, you know, there are efforts on, always on the German side, for example, to minimize casualties, to rely more and more on machines, chiefly artillery, to keep the German infantry back, pulverize the enemies, whether it's French, British, Russians, with artillery, and then just use the unblooded infantry to take that ground, dig in, allow the artillery to come up, pulverize the enemy again, let the infantry go back with minimal casualties, go, go forward, I mean, occupy the new ground. Uh, this is the German plan throughout the war. And, you know, I contrast that with the Austrian BME, and you'll read in the chapters about the fighting in Serbia and in Galicia and Poland, you'll, you'll read about how the Austrians have just launched these, these madcap bayonet charges with infantry unsupported by artillery unsupported by machine guns, frontal assaults on Serbian or Russian trenches. And the casualties are appalling, appalling. And, you know, not only among the men, but the officers are wiped out because they have to lead from the front with their sabers in their hand, wearing these bright yellow, you know, half-bird yellow leggings, and they're being mowed down. So the army literally commits suicide in the first months of the war. And here, too, if you're trying to figure out well, how does Austria and its weakened state, how does it win this war or at least avoid losing this war? And clearly the answer to that is you fight it more intelligently. If you're going to have to have a war, and it's pretty clear they're going to have to after this, because um, they've got to do something to solve this Serbian problem. Well, if you're going to do this, you need to proceed very carefully, thoughtfully, and professionally, and they do anything but. And the story then is one of the demise of an empire that has lasted for centuries that that could have been forestalled except for the mistakes of uh, a relatively small number of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, how long the empire is going to last? You know, is obviously anybody's guess. It was. Uh, mm -hmm. it was. It was. It was not a happy union of peoples at all. Um, you know, the 19th century was an age of nationalism, where you see the example of, you know, the, of the Greek state and the Italian state and the German state. So, you know, all these peoples want their own state. The Czechs want a state, and uh, the Poles want a state. Croats want a state. Uh, and uh, so how long they could have kept juggling all these balls successfully is anybody's guess. But certainly the fastest way to smash this empire into atoms was to embark on a war carelessly and ill-prepared. And, 
this is exactly what they did. And you, it's not enough just to say, you've got to read about it, and you, you, you will, your mind will just absolutely boggle at the spectacle of Austro-Hungarian decision-making, civilian and military. Mm-hmm. Well, we've taken a lot of your time, Jeff, and I, I, I really appreciate it. I just a couple quick questions to kind of wrap up. And, and the first one is for, for those of our listeners who are interested in going further, what one or two books would you recommend they read? Well, um, you mean about Austria, Hungary in general, or about it may be Habsburg stuff, or it may be broadly twentieth, twentieth century military history. Well, you know, my one of my favorite books about the uh, Habsburg Empire is uh, R. J. W. Evans, who mm-hmm. wrote a book. Um, I think it's called "The Making of the Habsburg Monarchy," but it's it's about the making of the monarchy in the early modern period, in the sixteenth century. How it all came together. It's a brilliant book that, uh, in a very sympathetic but scholarly, professional way, shows how this monarchy came together. And I think when you read Evans's book, you get a sense of, you know, how the thing was built, why it was built, why it was uh, so strong for so long, and why it occupied a essential place on the European map for so long. Um, and then to understand its disintegration, um, there's really no better book than this one I've just written, The Magic Catastrophe, just because it really, the, the first few chapters really chart the 19th century decline of the empire in terms of its politics, in terms of society, in terms of its military standing and its uh, political decision-making. Uh, a book that I've read recently that I, that I like a lot uh, about uh, the war itself is uh, William Philpott's book, War of Attrition, Fighting the First mm-hmm. World War. That's a good, it's, it's pretty short, uh, easy to read, uh, but, you know, very, very scholarly in the sense of, you know, he's done good research. But, you know, a lot of ink has been spilled in the last years about how World War One was just not this pointless slog. There was constant innovation going on as people tried to, Get a handle on this war. It was nothing like they, they they thought it would be like a war, like the Austro-Prussian War, the Franco-Prussian War, just on a larger scale. And they weren't ready to, you know, to slide into trenches and just exchange fire for four years. So they were always trying to think of ways to restore the war of movement and to restore a you know decisive victory. And the Philpott book takes you through the war and shows how how they did that. And then, of course, Christopher Clark, The Sleepwalkers, excellent book on the origins of the war. And, uh, you know, gives a very balanced view of all the powers and moves away from the tendency to blame the Germans. I, I personally still see the Germans as bearing the, the principal, you know, burden of guilt for this war because of the way they pushed the tempo in 1914. And they really sort of bundled the Austrians into war and say, it's now or never, let's do it. And if you do it, we will back you. And so they really pushed the Austrians into this. The Austrians would never embark on the war without strong German backing. So there's a lot of good stuff coming out now about the war. That's the nice thing about big anniversaries like the, the mm-hmm. centennial is that it, it generates a lot of new scholarship to coincide with the centennial. And uh, so suddenly we're getting a lot of really good new insights. And now that you've written this, what's next? Well, you know, I, I, uh, I'm interested in the uh, U.S. intervention of the war. There's a 
there's a uh, new book coming out by Yale's Adam Tooze about this, uh, in it, which I'm I'm eager to read. It's coming out in a couple of months, I think. And um, but it's about the U.S. intervention in the war. But you know, it's about the U.S. from 1916 to 1931, showing how we get into the war, how we fight the war. I haven't seen the book yet, but I suppose. Um, and it's funny because I've just been reading about this book, and it's sort of the book that I was thinking about writing because so little <laughs> is known about. Uh, but I mean, I think that he, I, I don't think he's going to look at it. I, I will look at the, I will look at the military operations of over one much more closely, mm-hmm. and I think he will. I think he's making a bigger statement about American power and interest in decision making, whereas I will look much more closely how the U.S. Army performed in the war. But then also look at you know the decision after the war to end the U.S. occupation of Germany, Germany prematurely, not to join the League of Nations, not to ratify the Treaty of Versailles, that sort of thing, and, and say, how did we fight a war on this scale with this level of sacrifice? Because even though U.S. casualties were small compared to the European dollars, they were still quite high, and plus we spent so much money on the war. And then we just, when it's over, instead of crowning that victory with a big U.S. presence in Europe, we retreated to isolationism. And so I actually stopped off in the archives in Paris on the way back to I get there was a there was a there was a inauguration conference for a new museum in France on the Franco Prussian War. And so they had me come over and speak at that and I stopped in the French archives on the way back for a week. And uh, I, there was, the French had this U.S. bureau that spent its time during the war trying to get the U.S. to join the war. And then once the U.S. Uh, joined the war, they start uh, you know, looking at the U.S. Army as it trickles over to France and, and commenting generally pretty acidly on it. And it's just amazing how the Army had to be grown from like 100,000 men to 3 million men almost overnight. And it's incredible just how this played out and how this army was prepared for the battlefield, how it performed on the battlefield. I think uh, this story hasn't really been adequately written. There's a, I think there's an overemphasis on the Second World War, and there's a decided underemphasis on the First World War. So I'm very curious to, to uh, follow that thread. Well, it sounds like a great project, and uh, we look forward to seeing it in a couple years or three years or whenever it shows up. And hopefully when it does, you'll come back on the podcast and talk about it. Oh, yeah, I'd be happy to. And uh, But I don't think it's going to show up that fast. But, you know, we'll see. <laughs> I might get a tremendous burst of energy. Well, I, I, I asked uh, uh, Mark Levine, who I interviewed for, for actually the podcast I'm usually on, uh, I asked him the same question, and his response was, what do you mean, what am I working on? I'm going to go out in the garden, and I'm going to garden. That's what I get for having finished a book. And I thought that was maybe the most sane answer I've ever heard an academic give. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it, it is very difficult to start a new one right away because, you know, books, they, they, take a, they take so much energy. I mean, when you're really writing one, you're just constantly on it all the time. It becomes a little bit obsessive. Uh, not because you love it, but because you just get wrapped up in it, and you've got to you've got to kind of get it done. You've got to work on it while you have it all in your head. Because if you take a week off, it all kind of settles, and you've got to rethink it all again. So, you know, it's a tremendous uh, it takes a lot of energy. So you you can't uh, you do have to unwind a little bit after each one. 
my wife would agree with all of that except possibly the the little bit obsessive part. She might quarrel with the little bit part. But <laughs> but anyway, I want to say thanks so much. I appreciate it. And, thanks, Kelly. I appreciate um, it. Thank you. Yeah, and thanks for your time. So thank you much, and have a great day. You too. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Jeffrey Waro, author of A Mad Catastrophe, The Outbreak of World War I, and The Collapse of the Habsburg Empire, published by Basic Books. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books in History, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time. Until then, I wish you the best of weeks.